Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby. And this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. We are a few episodes into season three, friends, and we're going to continue to unpack on the ground examples of our kind of season inquiry question, which is what does the street data model look like in action? And today we get to speak with two amazing leaders from Abbotsford School District in British Columbia. For folks who don't know that area, it's east about an hour from Vancouver, Sandeep Gill and Linda Palastretti. And Abbotsford School District is sometimes called Abbey School, so you might hear us refer to that in the conversation. And for a little bit of context, last school year, Jamila and I, co-author of Street Data, led the first ever student community of practice in Abbey schools with 50 grade 11 students and teams that represented eight different high schools in the district. That began with an all-day in-person retreat in Vancouver last fall. And then we worked virtually across the year to help these teams of students to identify an equity challenge in their schools, to gather street data mostly through empathy interviews with their peers, and then to reimagine a solution to whatever emerged from the data. So to really move through the equity transformation cycle with fidelity. At the end of the year, at the end of April of 2023, the students presented their findings at another in-person retreat with district leaders and site leaders listening and offering feedback and support. To be honest with y'all, it was one of the most inspiring and affirming things I got to do last year. It really filled my heart to spend time with the students, and it really affirmed for me how significant student voice and leadership is and how it changes everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we have a treat for y'all, pod friends. In today's conversation, we will listen closely to Sandy Gill, former teacher leader at Rick Hansen Secondary School and the current vice principal of Abbey Senior Secondary School, and Linda Palastretti, principal of W.J. Moat Secondary School, about their experience of this process such as like what they learned, what has shifted at their schools, and what advice they'd give those of you wanting to take student voice to the next level. Welcome, Sandy and Linda. Thank you. Hello. Welcome to the pod, colleagues. As you know, we love to start with story. So we would love for you all to tell us a little bit about who you are, and then maybe share a story of a moment or an interaction with a particular student that impacted who you are as a leader. I'll start with you, Linda. So a little bit about myself. This is my 31st year as an educator uh, in the province of British Columbia. This is my, I've only taught in two school districts. I have had the opportunity to either teach or be a leader in every single one of our high schools in the Abbotsford School District. So it has given me the opportunity to see the breadth and scale of things that are happening in our district. I never saw myself as being a leader and I still actually refer to myself as a teacher. So that gives you a little perspective about me. And then I think I am highly invested in the opportunity for students to take ownership of their school and their learning. And I often refer to it as their learning journey. And we are there to facilitate that journey. But the more we can empower students through self-confidence and through belief in themselves to own where they're, they're learning, I think we find great gains for kids when we do that. 
And the second question was to share a moment or an interaction with a particular student. And this happened in my second year of teaching, my first year in the Abbotsford School District. I was teaching in a new beginnings program for young female students who had children. And we were required to do home visits. And it was very empowering for me and eye-opening for me to see the scale of where kids were coming from. And it opened and it shifted some paradigms that I had beliefs about things. It allowed me to see that kids come from all different walks and backgrounds coming through our door and we tend to see them as all the same type and they're not. Um, I affectionately often refer to them as playing cards and some of our kids get really great playing cards to play and some of them not so great when they're playing that poker hand. I also am really uh, often say because of that experience that kids come with invisible backpacks on them every single day. We don't see them but it is that home community etc that they're coming with and the more that we can acknowledge those invisible backpacks the better we can do our jobs as educators so I just love that you talked about home visits I mean I that's how that was something that I think both Shane and I in our early careers as educators that was a practice we would go to families homes you'd break bread and and you would just commune because you are going to spend most of your time and most of the young people's times with these families' greatest gift to the world. And you you ought to know that, regardless of how they come in looking. And, you know, one of the things that I loved about school visits is I could hear the hopes and dreams that their family had for them. And so it allowed me to tap into that from an asset perspective of like, wait, I know your parents, I know your grandma wants this for you. So let's figure out how we can do this together, right? And so I think it's important to also name that you're not just doing home visits to gather street data, but looking at it from, as, as street data talks about, from an asset, the community wisdom, all the benefits that that invisible backpack is holding for the, for the learners. Thank you for reminding us about that. So I am, well, I finished six years of teaching. I felt like it was a pretty big milestone. And then I just started my first vice principalship here at Abbey Senior. And I've been also teaching at the, our local university in upgrading courses and teacher ed. So I guess that's where I kind of made up for my teaching experience. I think something that really drives my work is social justice and equity. The stories, like I think about the story of like my mom and how like she didn't have access and resources to go to school. So I was actually the first person to graduate university and to even hold a master's degree. So, so it meant a lot because all of that drives my work. I think that's where kind of it's kind of shaped my teaching practices too. And like Linda said, I will always say educator. Like I feel very uncomfortable saying vice principal. Yeah, I'm an educator and something that really shaped my work is doing entrance interviews with students. So at the start of each semester, I would sit down and talk to the students about who they are because most times the students come with their files that are like this thick and that kind of writes their story for them. But I like to give the students the opportunity to write their own story and to share their own narrative. And so they kind of have a fresh start and the ability to 
be who they want to be um, instead of that book defining who they are. So I think that's really shaped still, like even when I do discipline, I share, I listen to their story. Or I think that's also why I really resonated with Student Voice because it was about their voices and their stories. Just want to really appreciate you both for what you shared. And listeners, you can probably sense already why I relish the opportunity to work in BC in general, but particularly in Abbotsford, because in the first five minutes, our guests have talked about two incredibly powerful street data systems that are being activated in their schools, home visits and entrance interviews. And, you know, it really is that simple as committing and investing to these kinds of practices that center students' experiences and their their whole lives, the layers of their lives. So thank you guys for bringing those in. So let's shift from personal story into kind of school story or school narratives. So I want to invite listeners to walk inside each of your schools for a moment, sort of shoulder to shoulder with you and really helping us see and feel what last year's student voice was like. If you could just describe a little bit about that journey last year with your team of young people and then, you know, if you want to speak to a point of impact that is emerging from the work, why don't we start with you, Sandy? So the one word that captures how student voice was at Rickanson was it was buzzing. Like the students were literally flying around like they had conquered because they had in a way their voices were being shared. And then there was actual change that was taking place in the building. So the students proposed for an equitable timetable. And with that means that there is flexibility with how they get to use their time and take ownership of their own learning. So then they had meetings with principals, they conducted student interviews, parent, and it got approved for this year. So Rick Hansen currently has a timetable that was built by students. Oh my God, I have chills, you guys. Like my whole, speaking of buzzing, my whole body. This came out of last year's work, I'll see, and I'm telling you. And the amount of students, they were like, I cannot believe that this was possible. Like, they still talk about it. Like, I, they were sending me emails. Like, it was a huge buzz. I, I, I need to soak that in. So your students were able to shift the way in which the entire school managed time so that they could get greater learning opportunities and outcomes. The babies did that. Yes, it's possible. And the best part was that that was our first year implementation. There's even a four year plan that we can make it into an even more flexible timetable once the students have learned how to manage their own time. I'm telling you guys, we had this hypothesis and Abby, you know what, maybe what we need to do is actually just put the students in the center of this change work and you know, here it is, we can see it. So I do want to follow up though, Sandy, and then we'll shift to you, Linda, with your role was not insignificant in that process, right? Even though the students led, I saw you and the ways that you moved with young people. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you held that space for students, what some of your leadership moves or stances were that fed into that profound empowerment that happened. I, another one of my philosophies is no idea is too crazy. So I constantly reinforce like, 
I guess it goes with the dream big or the radical dreaming that whatever you want, like what is a concern and how do we fix it? So it was just constantly questioning the students when they would say something. I was like, oh, and or what do you think about this? And it was just a whole bunch of questions that just made them think of different possibilities. And then they would go back, edit, and then bring back another idea. And then it was kind of that whole cycle that we went through that we kept working with. And then by the end, I think by April-ish, we had put in a proposal and it was it was getting big where I was like, what do I do with this? So <laughs> I did more of like the managing tasks, like reach out to the principals, reach out to other teachers, whoever I needed so I can get the students in touch with them. Yeah. Yeah. I was just being there and making sure that I was able to clear those roadblocks if they hit any. There's so much in what you said. I just want to pull out a couple of things that I feel like I heard. One is this openness to radical dreaming, to quote Dr. Dugan, who's been writing about that. The second is this stance of inquiry, like asking questions and more questions and really pushing their thinking. And then just believing in the impossible, believing that they can manifest these big dreams and, and organizing yourself to, to support it. It's really beautiful. All right. Well, let's move to W.J. Buat. So, Linda, tell us about what the student voice work was like in your school and how it's emerging with some impact. Sure. So uh, my one word to describe last year's group was empowering. I don't think that they so we had a group of 20 students who we met with every two weeks. We started with a, a, a question that they had or a concern that they had about the school. And then we asked them to go and do the empathy interviews that we had talked about. And then we brought back that information. And based on that, uh, they came up with an, a big driving question. We came with dream big. What would you ask of teachers based on what you heard students say? And then at that point, when they're dream big, it was quite a big dream around assessment and assessment practices that didn't honor different ways of student learning or demonstrations of learning. And so at that point, alongside came an opportunity to speak with the Minister of Education and all of the what I call the big wigs of the BC education system. So the BC Teachers Federation, the uh, different unions that are involved, the Minister of Education, the Deputy Minister of Education, etc. And so our student voice group got to present to them about what they had been working on. And it, it very much fell in line with uh, the move the Ministry of Education in BC is doing around proficiency and students demonstrating proficiency of learning rather than a great which I know you talk about in your book, like it's not about the grade. And so it, it felt like just two things simultaneously came together for them and it very much empowered their voice. From that, the uh, various stakeholder groups that were there chatted with our kids one-on-one -on -one. like we thought we were only going there for an hour and a half and it ended up being much more than that as they didn't get enough of just asking kids questions about their learning experience but the big aha uh -huh, and when you talk about being really vulnerable this was a big vulnerability for myself and and our school was they tapped our kids on the shoulder to present to the bc trustees association conference so our kids sat on a stage uh, with our one of our assistant superintendents and answered big, bold questions that came to them from the trustees from across the province of British Columbia. So imagine 
10 kids sitting on a stage with 500 adults in in the audience listening to them talk about their hopes and dreams for their education things that they found really worked and things that they would kind of imagine reimagine do differently from that they came back and they were on fire same with sandy they have lots of things that they are working on this year that they would like to address and change it was it was quite empowering to them and where I would say the one, it was very vulnerable for me as a, as a principal, because some of the things they were talking about were like, oh gosh, did they just say that out loud? This is my school. Right. But I felt like it was really important for them to just say it and we can, we can continue to improve. Right. Much like what we give kids continuous feedback. It's good for a school to take continuous feedback too. such an important point, Linda, and I so appreciate that modeling for listeners because I think this is where the work often breaks down, right? As we feel reactively defensive or fearful about what is going to be exposed, right? But to be able to catch that, that not to judge ourselves, like that's a natural impulse, but to catch it and say, no, this is all in the spirit of growth and improvement. And we can listen and shift. And I'm also just floored that I don't even, I guess I sort of knew about this, but so the work didn't just impact your schools or even just the district. It had a provincial impact on the conversations about assessment, the trustees thinking about policy. I mean, it's just amazing. It's so inspiring. I am kind of tapping, you know, wiping some tears at the corner of my eye because this is also, this is kind of a a, a moment for you too, Shane, because What I know about you is that you deeply believe that our young people can and should change their schools, change their systems, that you believe so deeply in the voice and power of young people. And so what is hitting me right now is that you and Jamila have written this book, have created this process, and that belief is also getting spread you know, right? Like, you, I know, Sandy, you must, you must have felt like the lone voice when you, in just your belief of like, oh, no, no, young people can do this. I know I felt like that, too. And it wasn't until having Shane as my coach that I was like, oh, I'm not the only person who actually believes in the power of young people this strongly so much so that I'm willing to give them aspects of my school as a leader to design and figure out. And so I just, I'm just, it's like full circle. It's like, oh, my gosh, if more people, because these babies were not changing like small things. Like my kids changed their off-campus lunch policy. Fine. That's important, but it's not huge. They are changing their day and how they get assessed (laughs) from the whole like a division or district or whatever you want to call it. Like those are huge changes for young people to know that they can make. And you think about all the adults who are wringing our hands like how do we get teachers to shift assessment and you know like why are our schedules so you know oppressive and it's like well there's a way to actually move those what feel like very stuck structures in schools so So now that we've heard about these amazing transformations that are in process, right, in your in your schools, what have you been learning through this work 
around student voice? And more specifically, are there particular ways of leading and being as a leader that are critical to supporting students to lead? Are there mindset shifts that you see as instrumental that need to happen so that the leaders can actually do this kind of work with young people? I'll start with you, Linda. Yeah, as I reflected on this question, so some of the things that came to mind for me is, I think so often as educators, we are problem solvers and we leap to solving a problem. And what I learned last year is that I am not the problem solver, that I am the listener and I am the engager, the, pro- the prodder of questions and my curiosity is more important than solving the problem. The kids actually will come up with the, the solution in the end, they will work towards it. But the more that I can be curious about their question or about their the problem that they're working on rather than instantaneously solve it for them, the more I can drill down questions for them. So take a big, bold question and continue to push at, well, what about this or what about that? The more it, it, is, it is helpful to them. The other thing that really stood out for me in the work that I, we did last year was how important a student's identity is to their learning and their voice. I didn't really think about that before last year, but it very much came out as we worked through the processes that were that we had with Shane about how important their individual identity was to them and to them as a learner and how it impacted or played out at school. So so what mindset shifts do adults like what would you say that the leaders need to maybe shift or hold or or take away or unlearn in order to support that work? Oh, that's a great question. I think so. One of the things that has stood out in the BC curriculum, or it comes from Michael Fullen's work, where he talks about creativity, mastery, identity. And we do really good at the creativity and the mastery, rigor, etc. One of the things we don't particularly weave in is the identity piece. And it also is part of our BC learning standards. We talked about it at the beginning of this podcast how important it is for those home visits or those um, introductions at the beginning. One of the things I've asked staff to do here is to lean more in the first couple weeks of school to learn about the kids that are in your classroom, whether it's it's a survey or it's a, you know, what did you come to school with today? What does school look like? What do I need to know? Like, can you give me a five scale coming in? Are you a hot or a cold? So just to go slow, to go fast is what we're calling it. Learn your, your kids. And once you've learned them, you can go really fast. So Linda, I think this identity piece is so important and undervalued a lot in the work. And I, I wonder if a story comes to mind of a young person either who was part of the leadership or was listened to, whose identity emerged as like really central to the work. Yeah, so I will, one of the persons that came first and foremost was Harshan. He's a grade 11 boy. You'll probably remember him. So he's a South Asian male in in our community. He's very very driven young man, but he often gets stereotyped into the South Asian males in our communities and how hard he has to work in his classrooms to overcome that stereotype that's given to him. And he's not actually acknowledged for the Harshan that we all know, right? This very gifted, passionate individual who is academically 
gifted, uh, who is going places in the world, but he is often lumped into a stereotype and people just judge him based on that stereotype. And he talks about it from both perspectives, both the school perspective and the community perspective, what it's like for him being out in the community as a South Asian male and what it's like for him to be a South Asian male in the building as well. And I thought that was, for me, that was a really important story to hear. He talked about how he receives racism on a, on a daily basis, whether it's in our building or outside, and how that impacts him as an individual and as a learner. And it was really, it's important for me as, an, as a leader to hear that story and to understand the impact of that on his identity and how he interplays that with school and with our, within our greater community. Sandy, how would you answer this question? So with my note, it was really similar to what Linda said. I mean, there should be not much surprise because Linda has been my fabulous mentor throughout my teaching career. So that's why you'll see some things align. (laughs) And listening is the biggest thing. In order to amplify those student voices, we need to hear their voices. So practicing different types of listening was really important especially because as educators, we do a lot of talking. So then it's an important reminder to kind of sit back and listen because students will talk and they'll tell you what needs to be changed. And they will tell you all of the problems and everything that's going on in the building because honestly, they see the building. They know what's going on. They hear from other students. They advocate for one another. Definitely listening. And that's what one practice I'm definitely taking into this role Because even though it can be a little stereotypical role like bad cop, I feel like we can kind of change that narrative too. Because if we listen to them, then we can have the whole picture before we make any decisions too. I feel like I'm a little bit newer into leadership or even education still. So I've been really fortunate that this is kind of the way that I've learned how to lead, whether that's through Linda or my master's. Like we read street data as a part of my master's program. So this is the only way I really know how to lead. I don't know what the other way is. (laughs) Just this idea that we don't have to wait, right? And that's a lot of the satellite data paradigm, I think, is like, wait for the ministry to give us the data, wait for the standardized test, wait for the this or the that. We don't have to wait. We have all the answers right in our buildings and right in the babies, as Asin calls them, if we listen to them, if we slow ourselves down. So thank you for that. We'll stay with you for a second, Sandy, because you mentioned street data. I didn't actually know it was in your master's program. That's really fun to hear. I feel very honored and humbled. Curious for folks who are out there maybe just starting to explore the book, is there a concept or a chapter in street data that you have found helpful as a leader in shifting how you lead around this particular body of work? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was day two or week two of my master's. They were talking about ethnographies. So immediately we had to go conduct an ethnography. And I know that is a strategy that's talked about of collecting different types of data about our community. Because when we look at our school, like we get so focused on what's happening on the inside. But it's like our students are coming from the community, coming from different parts of our community. So we took a step back and we conducted an ethnography of our area of our school and that gave a huge insight into what's actually happening around us. 
And then as then we started reading the book later on in my master's, and then I saw how all of those things aligned. Um, and it just gave you a different story of what's happening behind the scenes before we even have people coming into our building because the community around us is what makes up our community inside the building as well. So that was really neat because I had never even thought about how all of those could really play into each other. So I thought ethnographies were important. Um, and another one is shadowing a student um, because we see the overall and the glimpses, but actually following and shadowing a student and seeing what their day-to-day -day or minute-by-minute -minute experiences are tells you so much about the different types of students that we have in the building. So as someone who is new, like year one into leadership, what are the dominating mindsets that you, or stories that your colleagues or your other leaders might say that gets in the way of them listening to students or like what gets in the way because you're right it's a very simple thing but what gets in the way I think what I usually hear is oh that's not how I've done it well clearly it's not working so it's time to change it because a lot of people are comfortable they love how it's been going on for 30 plus years it's easy like you show up you do whatever has been happening for 30 years and then you leave Whereas I feel like during COVID, like we saw a lot of gaps and that's where like student voices got amplified. They're like, hey, we don't have this, this or this. Through that, I feel like a more change came through. And then we also saw that change can happen quickly. Like it doesn't need to be this long stretched out process and that we can change quickly. So it's a lot of that just mind, uh, mindset, a change of Yes, it can happen. We can make change and let's do it. Like, let's just take some action. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. So all, we've talked about um, home visits, entrance interviews, ethnographies, and shadowing a student. So those are four like power tools for this work around school transformation. How about for you, Linda? Is there a concept or chapter that's been useful in this student voice work? For me, the chapter was chapter five, which talks about um, pedagogy of voice. And it, um, so we have really leaned hard into... Uh, looking at the pedagogy that teachers are using, um, and Sandy kind of hit it. <laughs> Many teachers are using what they used 10, 15, 20 years ago because that's what worked 10, 15, 20 years ago, but they actually haven't shifted their pedagogy to allow for more students to have access points into the curriculum or to allow them to demonstrate what they know or to allow for their individual learning styles, et cetera. And so the more that we can shift the pedagogy that we're using in the classroom, which is, I love that Sandy's like, we're at different paradigms in our career. She's the first five years. I'm the last five years kind of thing. But these kids coming into us from university right now as teachers, they understand it. They have a pedagogical lens that provides instant equity for all of our kids versus someone like myself who's at the outside end. We were not taught some of these strategies 
and we were taught a one size fits all strategy. And so we need to leverage into those newbies and listen to what they are using and how they're using it in the classroom versus expecting them to shift into like our one size fits all approach. Um, it's very interesting to me to see it play out in my schools and make sure that my newer teachers are actually leading, not following. Like they have some strategies that were never taught when I went through teacher school, right? And so when we talk about the breadth of students that are coming into the classroom, and often I hear teachers, I talk about how do I do this wide breadth of students that I have in my classroom from like this level to the highest level and make sure that I'm having entrance points. And my response is always, what pedagogy are you using to use that instruction? Because if you choose the right one, you absolutely have an, an, an entrance point for any child. In inquiry or PBL, we often refer to it as high, uh, low floor, high ceiling. So where's your access point for your lowest student? And where's your access point for your highest student that they can challenge themselves? So if you're using strategies that are there, which I think is what I pulled out of chapter number five, particularly around questions and the opportunities for students to activate their own voice around questions. That was it for me. That's fantastic. And I love how you really modeled the symmetry of choosing the margins that that obviously that happened at the student level through this process, or we hoped it did, but also newer teachers can be marginalized, right? They can be cast aside as not having the same kind of cultural capital or social capital in a school, but to be able to center those voices and what the learning that they're getting access to is a really powerful source of change. Shane, as you know, is gathering street data through our podcast for her next book, which will unpack the ideas of chapter five, Linda. So thank you for teeing us up so well. And so, we're, you know, Shane's thinking about student agency and pedagogy of voice. And so we wonder if you could speak to a specific pedagogical practice that you think is transformational in its ability to cultivate student voice. Like what's that one thing that every educator should consider weaving into their practice if they're going to take you know, practice this pedagogy of student voice. You want to go first, Sandy? I think that was what was really reinforced even in my teacher ed was the power of reflection. Because when we are reflecting, we're seeing what's going well, what we need to improve on. And if we're constantly revisiting that, then we're able to constantly make change. So I feel like I mean, I'm fortunate, I guess, in a way that I do have a long commute after work. So I spend about an hour and a half reflecting on my day. And I think that really helps me because I was like, oh, how can I make this better? Or what can I do differently next time? Who do I need to ask? And just embedding that into your practice, I feel like is a real big game changer. It's also, I think it also reinforces the unlearning process too because we're able to reflect on what's not doing well, then it's like, what do we unlearn? And that's important because our society is changing faster than ever. I guess those would be my approaches that I feel like are super important. Yeah, and the research backs Sandy up. You can gain seven months of instruction by teaching kiddos how to be reflective and metacognitive around their own learning strategies and learning journeys. So 
She's right. Linda, what would you say? (laughs) So one of the things that came out of our student voice group last year was how they really appreciated when teachers gave them feedback or what I call feed forward sometimes. So you can apply it instant to the very next thing that you're doing. But interestingly enough, the moment that jived for me was how often they said teachers did not often ask for feedback from them on what was happening in the classroom. And they, they were like, we, off, we love feedback. We love instantaneous feedback from our teachers so that we can fix it for the next time, the next thing that we do. But at the same time, we would love to be able to provide our teachers feedback, either right in the moment of or after the fact, that they might apply the next year. And they actually identified a particular student or a particular teacher in my building who was very good for actually taking feedback and would say, is this working for you? What do I need to do differently? And opened himself up. They called it, could teachers be more open with us and be more vulnerable with us? I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I just love that so much because we think of, and I fall into this trap, we think of feedback as a one-way pedagogy, teacher to student. But if we're really trying to share power, then it's that reciprocity of feedback. Yes, teachers need to give meaningful, wise feedback to students, but they also need to be open to hearing it, right? Um, And so you two just mentioned two of the six simple rules from chapter five, right? Ritualize revision and reflection and feedback over grades. And it's just affirming to hear those come up kind of organically for you um, as things that I do think are game changers if we can build them more into our practice day to day. So thank you. Okay, this is our final question, and then we'll do a lightning round, which is pretty quick. So we wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge that your famous renowned, amazing superintendent, um, Dr. Kevin Godden, who was a guest in season one, episode four, um, retired this past June. And there have been a lot of shifts in leadership in the district. And I think a lot of folks are struggling with how to sustain work like this, you know, initiatives like this when there are system leadership changes. And so just curious how each of you is thinking about continuing the legacy from last year, despite shifts at the top of the system. So for me, I think I will chime in and say that I don't, I think leadership comes from the grassroots. And so regardless of the changes that I see at a senior management level or a a building level, I think that we need to continue the work with the kids. And so I recognize that we've had some changes in our district and we've had some changes within our own building. Sandy is no longer at at, at a building that she was at, for example. But I think we are all going to continue to lead our student voice groups. My kids are clamoring for it to continue. They actually are demanding it to continue. And so I have really much leaned into them and said, let's just do this work. And I have also dovetailed it into our school plan so it has purpose which I think is also a a, a part that we've missed is that I think kids can smell when it's just work but doesn't have any meaning to it. So it needs to have purpose. I feel like it's the students that are doing the work. So even when I came into Abby Senior, I saw the last year's student voice group and they're like, yeah, let's pick up the work. And all I really do is 
show up and get them some food and they're driving the project and so like they're super excited even when I was like hey you might be on the podcast they were running telling the friends I'm gonna be famous like basically that was <laughs> so the students are super super excited and even though I've changed buildings like kids are kids like they are passionate and I feel like even more so with Gen Z they everything like they're way more aware so they are able to identify everything quicker and they're excited about the work so all I'm going to do is show up and learn from them because this is a big building and I have lots to learn so they will be there to teach me oh my goodness it fills my cup so much to hear that the students are so committed and sustaining the work and that you all are able to just continue to support them So yes, so we're going to go into our lightning round. So the point of these lightning round questions is for you to answer in 10 seconds or less, maybe five words or less. We'll see where we go with this. <laughs> we're going to start with you, Sandy, with this question, all right? You are called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Just listening and being there for people. Beautiful. Linda. Take down the defense mode. What's under the rock is really important. Ooh, nice metaphor. All right. What is a practice, ritual, or way of being in the world that keeps you grounded in the struggle for educational justice? Offer grace and kindness. We're all trying to do the best we can with what we have. Sandy? Knowing that they have a team behind them. What's one form of street data every educator should gather? Linda, you go. <laughs> well, it's, it's street data in the form of just talk to the kids. Just just ask them where they're coming from and how they're coming from. So, Sandy? Uh, in addition to that, I think they should also shadow a student. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And then conversely, what's a type of data that you feel is overused in school work? Sandy? Service, just like looking at numbers. Linda? Uh, satellite data. I'm tired of looking at a grad rate. It tells me nothing. <laughs> they came today ready so our, our final um li lightning round is a great learning experience will like what's the impact of a great learning experience uh sandy empowerment mm, linda last a lifetime i still remember science 10 uh, you want to shout out your science 10 teacher right now mr creed yeah oh i love it it's been so wonderful to have this conversation. So inspiring. And I love how you put it, Linda. You have someone who's at the last five years of their career and someone who's as a leader and someone who's just starting in the first five years of their career as a leader. And so both of you have created some beautiful bookends of a story that any leader that has found themselves in any year of their journey can learn from. So thank you so much for your um all the wisdom that you have earned over the years and the, the, the ways in which you have probably um, taken a little bit of a, some beatdowns as you try to <laughs> impact these ways of being. And we appreciate you, Linda, for how you have made a way so that Sandy can lead in the way that she's leading. And we know, Sandy, so many great things are going to come from your leadership. So we're super excited and happy for that you all could take out some time to join us today. Shane, take us home. Just a huge thank you. I My, my cup is just running over with 
gratitude and joy for the work that you've led and the fact that it's continuing, that it doesn't have to stop when the superintendent leaves, that there's really, there's no stopping students that are buzzing with passion and energy around change. And that's the biggest lesson I take from this conversation. And I can't wait to have on a couple of the Abbey students in a few weeks and uh, to circle back to you all with those stories as well. So thank you both for being here with us today. And thank you for having us and allowing us to share our stories. Thanks for inviting us. It was a pleasure to share my voice on behalf of the students in our building. So check it out. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number. 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all. And we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Zoe Morgan and our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe as well for amazing social media support and a special shout out to Shane's former student, Rocky Rivera, for our theme music. If you want to get a copy of Street Data, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local independent or Black-owned bookstore. At Corwin's website, use discount code STREETDATA, all caps, to get 20% off. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. This'll all be edited out. <laughs> That's so funny.